Farming Sec podcast listeners, this is Michelle Miscali, Senior Editor of Farming Sec Magazine. Hey guys, this is Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of Farming Sec Magazine. Farming Sec is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. Kristen, what are we talking about on today's episode? Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Raymond Sanchez. Ray is the Senior Vice President of Global Clinical Development at Otsuka Pharmaceutical Development and Commercialization, and he's one of this year's class of emerging pharma leaders. Uh, Michelle actually profiled him for the October issue. I did. Um, Raymond was an absolute pleasure to speak with. We, I think, went well over our typical 45-minute interview when we actually talked. Um, and he has a really interesting story about using mindfulness to develop his employees and how he left the academic world to move on to the commercial side. And he just has some really good insight about leadership in the pharma industry. Before we play Ray's interview, let's take a quick break. Are you on LinkedIn? If so, you should join the Pharmaceutical Executive Group and connect with over 16,000 of your pharma and biotech colleagues in everyday discussions about the industry. Just search Pharmaceutical Executive on your LinkedIn group page and request to be added. Hello, hello, podcasters. We're here today with Raymond Sanchez, Senior Vice President of Global Clinical Development at Opsuka Pharmaceutical Development and Commercialization. We're excited to have Ray on today because we profiled him for our October issue this year. Welcome, Ray. Thank you, Kristen. It's great to be here with all of you. So to get started, Raymond, you were one of our 2018 Emerging Pharma Leaders. Uh, briefly tell us about yourself and what you do with Otsuka. Yes, Michelle. So I um, have been in the pharmaceutical industry now for about 19 years. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist by training. I trained at the Yale Medical School and I've had a fascination really with the brain, even as an adolescent uh, and throughout my medical career, um, having had been exposed to clinical trials and the development of new therapies, I just found it really exciting to be able to provide new treatments to the patients who can benefit from them and really address unmet medical need. I started in the industry uh, at Purdue Pharma, working in mostly the uh, analgesia area and then moved to Bristol-Myers Squibb, where we really developed Abilify from its inception and all throughout its, its life cycle. And uh, during that time in Connecticut, uh, moved to Europe uh, to lead the neuroscience group there uh, out of France. And then um, the Atsuka opportunity came along to really develop the long-acting injectable Abilify uh, Mantena. So that brought me back to Princeton. Uh, in 2007, 11 years ago, um, which gone pretty quickly. And uh, over my tenure at um, Otsuka, I uh, oversee the global clinical development team that really develops therapies both in the in the CNS and digital medicine space as well as the cardiorenal space uh, globally. Um, and um, that is my current role as senior vice president overseeing that group. You actually left a pretty stable clinical and academic position with Yale. 
that most people in your position wouldn't really ever dream of giving it up, but you felt that the passion of wanting to help people on a larger scale was more important. So you faced a lot of doubt from your colleagues about that choice. Can you tell us about why you still made the switch and how you ended up at Otsuka? Uh, yes. So, yes, I, I, you know, was very fortunate to have been trained probably in one of the premier psychiatry programs globally um, and um, was very fortunate to have a very um, prolific time there. Uh, and then, you know, at the, at the end of my fellowship and I joined the junior faculty uh, for, a, for a small while. And during my tenure there, uh, I was actually almost as the liaison between the pharmaceutical industry and the residency program um, in the Department of Psychiatry. Um, and uh, as a chief resident at the time, I was able to work with various companies to really foster the relationship uh, with the residency group, but also develop certain programs for training and also for education within the, the group as well. Uh, we also were conducting clinical trials um, uh, for uh, novel therapies. And during my discussions with people in my current role when I was uh, a resident and a fellow, um, I really developed a keen interest in, in learning how to bring new medicines, the studies that supported the development of new medicines to, 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 to patients. Of course, uh, transitioning from one environment to the next is never easy. I, uh, when I was in medical school, never really dreamt of uh, actually joining the pharmaceutical industry to develop new therapies, but really saw myself as a practicing psychiatrist, really being able to help patients um, in, in a more hospital or clinical setting. But my, my passion really evolved and in, in, in grew Christian, you know, over time. And, um, of course, anytime you're, you're switching from an academic to a more entrepreneurial a role such as that in the pharmaceutical industry, that there still remains some polarization there to some degree. Uh, it's always um, difficult for those that don't uh, really share the same likes or passion um, to be critical. Um, but I do believe at the end of the day that you really have to pursue your your life's passion and and in whatever you you believe will allow you to make the most impact to patients and those around you and also be a personal fulfillment to you. And so the decision to make that transition um, was not as difficult based on, uh, based on that premise. And obviously, 19 years later, you know, I still am very gratified by what I do and very excited uh, to have taken or made the choice that I made. Um, and... Um, uh, my ending up at Otsuka came after being at Purdue Pharma, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and then joining Otsuka at the end of 2007 uh, to really pursue uh, a variety of therapies and indications in the CNS space, as well as digital medicine. So one of the things you told me about what influenced your decision to move to the commercial world uh, was the notion that you were watching these clinical trials take place. And that while on paper they seemed great, but when put into practice, there were some issues. So give our listeners some examples of how you have helped make those changes now that you're on the commercial side. Right. So, you know, interestingly enough that even though it appears that I'm on the commercial side, I'm really on the clinical development side. 
and uh, clinical development, of course, to bring therapies from the animal studies first into human and then going through the various phases to generate the data necessary for uh, approvability. But I do believe that in order to write uh, sound protocols that really are patient-centric and they really can resonate when you're executing them at any given clinical site, that you do have to have that clinical experience, that acumen, because what I meant is that anything looks good on paper, but is, can you execute it? Is it in the best interest of the patient? And does it really uh, ascertain the various nuances that are critical in practice to ensure that the patient journey is a good one, but importantly, that you're choosing the right patients to have enough sensitivity to pick up a drug signal, if indeed there is one, in the indication that you're studying. So, it, you know, it, it just couples the, the your clinical acumen and your experiences with a regulatory-driven uh, experiment uh, that uh, coupled together are very powerful to get these medicines approved. So in your opinion, what are the foundations to build a successful clinical trial then? So I think one of the things is you've got to understand um, other clinical trials that have been done in the area for that indication in the population and to really do your homework to understand what worked, what didn't work. Um, Sometimes the regulatory environment is somewhat prescriptive, so there's not a lot of creativity in terms of the design that you really use, um, since it's somewhat prescribed to some degree. But you really um, want to make sure that you do your homework. You want to be thorough to understand the, uh, the 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 best design to pursue in order to address the both the evaluation of efficacy and safety and tolerability, and with that compound in the population you're studying it, you want to understand the patient profile. Even though uh, someone may have been successful even five years ago in the, the same indication, the patient profile may have changed a bit. The landscape has changed. So you really want to make sure that you understand that the, 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 the change in that landscape and the change uh, as well as in potential therapies that have the same mechanisms of action. So it's really uh, it's really being very thorough. It's really making sure that you have a a very um, robust study design, that you do your homework, that you understand your dosing well, that you ensure that the endpoints that you're using are those that are consistent with the, the regulatory uh, feedback that you're receiving, or the ones that are accepted by the regulators. Understand the nuances and some of the um, individual uh, obstacles around some of the study execution, and, method, and make sure that the methodology is one that is robust but also consistent with what uh, has been successful. Um, and then making sure that you s select the right sites, the right clinical trial sites, to ensure they get the right patients who really uh, fit the characteristics of the patient that you need to study to have the best chance of likelihood of success. And one of the challenges, as you know, in the CNS space is the ever-growing placebo response. And so how do we try to mitigate that so that we actually can do fewer trials to get uh, a greater uh, um, likelihood of success and having fewer trials to assess the efficacy and the safety tolerability of our compounds without having to do 
multiple trials um, to get the, the, the ones that are needed for uh, approval, not just in the U.S., but really globally. I have to say, when I was writing your article and we did our, our first interview, I absolutely loved talking to you. Um, and one of the things that was my favorite part about writing your profile, um, and if any of our listeners had read the article, you'll see this is actually how I started out the story. Uh, but you told me a story about a time where you were in a pharmacy and everything kind of came full circle for you. And I tried to do the story justice in the article in written words, but can you tell our listeners in your own words about this? Because I know I just love the story. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michelle. So, first of all, thank you for your kind comments. And, and, you know, uh, yes, this is really an epiphany for me uh, that I had had because I remember um, Abilify uh, had been been approved – and uh, it was really um, about a six months to a year later. Uh, it was 2003, just around that time. And I had walked into a CVS pharmacy, and I was really always very keen on um, looking at all the various uh, bottles of the various therapies and treatments that they had as medicines. And they alphabetized them because, you know, it's easier for them to, like any, like, like being in a library, you know, they're alphabetized so that they're able to access them fairly quickly. And there it was, the Abilify, um, you know, bottle. And I was just for a moment, it was, it just, it came to me because of course we, we all know that we're doing this because we want to develop new therapies for patients and we want everybody to benefit who can from the therapies that you develop and you work so hard to get approved. But it just dawned on me, my goodness, you know, there is that, it's real. There it is, this medication sitting on a shelf that I had a a small part, but, you know, we all play a part in getting it developed and getting it approved and how many patients are now coming to fill the prescriptions and really benefiting from this wonderful new class of drugs. And uh, it was really a very... uh, eye-opening, very uh, sobering, uh, um, humbling moment that really put into context why it was that I had made the decision to transition from where I was in clinical practice and academia to the pharmaceutical industry and global clinical development, and that that really continued to spark my desire to continue to pursue what I did to this day, and it's really, it was very exciting but also very sobering. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about how you lead your teams at Otsuka. From what I understand, you believe in developing the whole person and you actually use mindfulness and you dedicate time and money towards developing uh, the people who are in your groups. And you even bring in outside professional development coaches to work with them. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely, Kristen. So, you know, what I do know for sure that compounds are only as good as the teams that develop them. So a lot of times, many companies spend a lot of money on new therapies, assets to develop, but they really don't pay as much attention to the individuals that develop these compounds. And what I mean by that is, are they, do they have the right skill set? Uh, are they able to you know, tackle some of the challenges in development? Are they positioning them for success and so forth? And so one of the things that I also learned over time was that you can't multitask while you're developing good trial designs, while you're developing good theories, good strategic approaches to ensure greater greater likelihood of success, and that you really have to be present in the moment. 
and that you have to really do it with a clear brain um, in order to really ensure that you're paying attention to all the details and that you're doing the appropriate homework and that you're infusing all that into what is your best design, your best protocol for execution. So to that end, um, I was looking at a lot of the technology companies, you know, the Googles and the likes, uh, you know, um, and that they really had adopted in many cases uh, this mindfulness, which, you know, a lot of people that I know, that people out there listening to this probably know, people who actually go and meditate and actually uh, do that in order to be central and be focused on the moment and allow them to really uh, relax their mind to allow them to be very clear-headed as they pursue very uh, um, challenging endeavors. And that's really where the, the concept came from, that I really wanted my team to be the best that they could be in order to position them for the greatest likelihood of success and in turn really develop the company and also develop the therapies in the best light. So I uh, was able to be extremely fortunate to have met um, a lady by the name of Janet Matz, who uh, has a consulting firm. Uh, she had been prior and she had done uh, executive development at, at uh, one of the Johnson & Johnson companies. And she's now joined uh, my team as, as a contract worker now as a consultant for uh, several years. And she actually meets with everybody individually on my team, but importantly conducts these mindfulness sessions and really has introduced the concept of mindfulness, as have others. And um, it's resonated so nicely, and we've seen such a such a, tra a steep trajectory of development in the individuals on the team. Also, their productivity has increased. And in fact, Janet and I gave a presentation at the International Society for CNS Drug Development about two or three years ago uh, that I now co-chair, um, and it really resonated. And so we've written an article. I'm pleased to say that Pharmaceutical Executive has accepted the article for publication. It should be coming on in the near future. And this article really is all around the concept of mindfulness, productivity, being present in the moment, and but more importantly, really prioritizing using this method the development of individuals on the team to ensure that you have the best individuals uh, driving the success of the therapies you're developing, and really that's the concept that really supports it. That's pretty amazing. Um, and I actually, have, I want to kind of dive into that a little bit more um, while I was listening to you talk about mindfulness. You know, in general, I feel like some, not 100% of people are on board with it. You know, what is it? How does it work? How do I integrate this into my everyday life? Um, never mind integrating it into my whole company or my team. So given the fact that you did work in a clinical setting, have studied the brain, understand how people's minds work, do you think that mindfulness is something more companies need to integrate into their employee development plans? And then given all of this, um, do you, you know, knowing how the brain works, do you think that helps make you a better leader? So I'm not an expert on mindfulness, so let me just say that. Uh, but I do, uh, I do believe in it, and I've, st I've studied it to some degree with uh, with Janet and others. And um, I, I do think that the answer to your question is, do you think it makes you a better leader? I think the answer is yes. And why does it do that? And you know, I suppose we could come up with a variety of um, uh, more technical or more concrete reasons in terms of the brain and its its neurochemistry and the like, and how the, the, the two interface. But I think. 
you know, it's really around the fact that um, in order for anyone to be able to fully dedicate their attention to a very difficult task at hand, that they have to have a very clear mind. They have to ensure that all the noise in the environment is toned down, that their focus is not deterred, that any anxiety that is either around them or incumbent in what they're doing is, is subdued or, or, or mitigated. And what mindfulness does is it allows individuals to actually tackle a lot of that stimuli around them and also some of the challenges inherent in the distractions that are all around us from what we need to do. Um, and it's a practice. It's a practice. And so it, I can tell you that it, 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 it's, a, it's iterative and it, it's an evolutionary uh, practice that takes time to develop and to really focus. And if anyone's ever meditated or tried to meditate or tried to be practice mindfulness, that your mind wanders and you've got to, you know, train it to go back and realign, you know. And so... Um, I do, but I do think it makes you a better leader because as a leader, one of the things that, that that's really, really critical is that you be thoughtful, that you invest in those around you in their development. And it's not just about then uh, reading certain principles and books or following a mantra that you think works, you know, or they have heard over time. But it's really every individual taking these concepts and you as a leader supporting them so that they actually are the best that they can be, both professionally and personally. And by the way, it's not just professional development, it's also personal development. And the two, of course, go hand in hand as human beings that we are, you know, treating the whole person, not just one aspect of them. So I do think the ultimate uh, goal, and I think the outcome here, is it does make you a better leader for all the reasons stated. Um, and it's something that... Um, We've adopted very nicely, and I, and I think the, the article that we put together, I think, will shed some light on, in terms of productivity, in terms of the approach. And one of the motivations, um, Michelle, really underlying, and Kristen, underlying, you know, my wanting to do this and write this article along with Janet and Tim Peter Strickland, who's um, one of the vice presidents in my group, um, is really around helping other individuals, helping other leaders, helping other uh, people in the business, and maybe even outside of the business, you know, really understand how we've benefited from this practice. Uh, it's, it resonated so much with the audience at the uh, International uh, CNS Forum that uh, it really motivated us to, to really, you know, write an article about it and really spread the word. And to date, we now have a yearly, at the yearly meeting, we have a session dedicated to mindfulness, not only to practice it in the group, but also to discuss it in terms of its impact to other teams, other organizations, and the potentially the future of developing better therapies because of the focus that it necessitates and what this practice brings to it. What I, what I want to figure out is how can you give, um, you know, the listeners, our listeners are, are hearing what you're saying, and, and they might be 100% agreeing with you. And they're saying to themselves, but how do I get the funding for this from right. my company? So what right. are some tips that you use or that you give other people's advice to use when they, you know, when they can go to their bosses or they can go to their board, because if we're talking to the C-suite leaders, or their CFO right. and say, hey, I need some, some funding for this. How do we do this? Right, right. 
So I think it's really, it's got to be empirically driven. It's really not about, you know, uh, you know, emotions. It's really about, uh, and belief. Um, I think it's, it's got to be about, it's empirically driven that, that's why we wrote the article to show the productivity. But it's really to understand the principles of mindfulness, the, uh, you know, how it drives outcomes. And to be honest, the investment is not that, it's not that much. It just takes really uh, someone who understands the concept to come to the organization and work with the teams. Um, the investment is really very minimal uh, when it, if you if you just break it down into dollars, um, you know, for a uh, return that is uh, so worth you know the you know what you're getting back. Um, and so, it, but it's you know there are lots of articles out there uh, in terms of you know leadership outcomes, investment in, in productivity, and so forth. And that's one of the – that was really the impetus in, in, really draw, in really writing this article was to give those individuals the opportunity to learn from that and to say, you know, I think I'm going to invest in this. But the investment is nowhere near the investment that we make on, in other areas of, the, of the, the pharmaceutical development business. So I'm hoping that's something that will resonate with the audience listening to this and and others, and that they really look into um, bringing someone who can work with their teams. And uh, again, the financial investment is really minuscule relative to the outcome and benefit that you get over time. It's really funny that you mentioned the article that you wrote for us because uh, just before we began recording this podcast, um, I got um, an email from our editor asking to post it to our website this week. So when I saw the title, I was pretty intrigued, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it now uh, that you're talking about it a little bit more. So for our last question, as a leader, what is the biggest challenge facing pharma leaders like yourself at the moment, and how do we tackle it? My goodness, I think there, there are a few, but I think the key ones are, um, number one, really, uh, depending on the area that you are, we're really addressing unmet need, that in some areas, uh, we the, the 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 um the medical need has exceeded the science. I'll take examples like, you know, Alzheimer's disease and ALS and other neurodegenerative diseases. I'm sure we could come up with similar um you know di- diagnoses or, or illnesses in other therapeutic areas. But it's really finding the right molecules and the right um uh you know therapies um to really make an impact in these devastating disease states. I think the second one uh, really is finding the right individuals to develop our therapies, and that really is incumbent on the pharma leaders to invest in them in order to have the best team developing the therapies. And as as I said earlier, we spend a lot of money on assets in the pharmaceutical industry uh, in trying to bring in novel therapies, what we believe will be the best therapies, but we don't always pay attention to the people that develop them. We assume that if they've had certain experiences that they'll be up for the challenge or we're positioning them for success, but that's not really true. So, uh, and then the third one, I think, uh, is the fact that the landscape is changing. And so how we've done clinical trials traditionally with sites and the like is changing, and we're looking at, you know, how do we leverage technology to um, do remote clinical trials and, and, and not have the, the middleman or the site, the site level really conduct the trial? And 
how do you do more with less, meaning reducing cost, um, evaluating therapies in someone's environment, um, you know, not having to go to a, a hospital site or, or, or a, a trial site. And so that's another uh, piece uh, that is evolving. So for me, it's really top three is really, you know, finding the new medicines that really, uh, uh, you know, are able to effectively treat the devastating illnesses that still present with great unmet need, finding the right people to develop them, and ensuring that you really invest in developing the future leaders to to have the best teams develop the best therapies. And then finally, how do we stay on top of an evolving landscape so that we can leverage technology, infuse innovation, and continue to do more uh, with less in order to have built-in efficiencies that I think will allow us to bring better medicines to market much more quickly. That's really great. Thanks so much, Raymond, for taking some time out of your day to talk with us and offer some great insight to our listeners about switching to the commercial side, how you lead your teams, and mindfulness in business, which is pretty interesting to learn about. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Michelle. Greatly appreciate it. It's it's been a a, a nice time with all of you, and uh, greatly appreciate the support and really the opportunity to share some of my thoughts and experiences with your audience, and I hope they find it useful. And if anyone wants to read uh, Raymond's article, they can check out farmingbeck.com to read about him and the rest of our 2018 Emerging Pharma Leaders. And now it's time for this week's leadership tip from Pharma Execs. Hi, it's uh, Raymond Sanchez. I am Senior Vice President of Global Clinical Development at Atsuka Pharmaceutical Development and Commercialization. And I think my best tip would be develop your team, invest in their development, and pay attention to your clinical trial designs and execution. And I think with those ingredients, uh, I think it's a recipe to position everyone for success in developing new therapies. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, or on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director lisa.henderson at ubm.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at todd.baker at ubm.com.